Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season seven, episode eight, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1995 American neo-noir crime thriller film Seven that was directed by David Fincher and written by Andrew Kevin Walker. It stars Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kevin Spacey, and John C. McGinley. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So, according to Cinefantastique, in a February 1996 interview with screenwriter Andrew Kevin Walker, Walker claimed that he was inspired to write the script after living in New York City. Which, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, geez. What part of New York City were you living in, Andrew? (laughs) He said, quote, I didn't like my time in New York. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) But But it's true that if I hadn't lived there, I probably wouldn't have written seven, unquote. According to an article for Mental Floss, quote, making ends meet at a New York City Tower Records store, Walker was so depressed that he wrote a bleak and oppressive script about the hunt for a killer who uses the seven deadly sins as inspiration for crimes. Satisfied with the outcome, he sent it to professional writer David Coep and then followed up with a phone call. Coep agreed to send it to his agent, who found a buyer at New Line Cinema. After reading it, Co-op also advised Walker that he, quote-unquote, needed professional help. Oh, dear. Okay. (laughs) So, Walker's original script featured the very gruesome ending of one of the characters' heads in a box. The studio thought it was going too far and asked that the ending be changed. More on this in just a second. Hot off the director's chair for the extremely disappointing Alien 3, David Fincher was for sure he was done with Hollywood, saying, quote, I thought I'd rather die of colon cancer than do another movie. Oh my, that's extreme. But Fincher was sent Walker's original script, the one with the head in the box, and he was so intrigued by the ending and the meditation on evil that the script presented that he agreed to do the film. Once he discovered that the the head-in-the-box scene was cut, Fincher and Brad Pitt both fought hard to keep it in the film. The producers still didn't like the idea because they didn't want Pitt's character to kill the villain because that, quote, wouldn't be very heroic, unquote. (laughs) The studio had no clue how tragedy works, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) Because... Because they felt that maybe Freeman's character should kill the John Doe villain instead. Ugh. Pitt argued that if he or anyone had discovered someone had murdered their family, they would shoot that person dead. So, ultimately, the the head-in-the-box scene remained, and Pitt's character still kills John Doe in the film. Now, if you haven't seen Seven in a while, you might be remembering the the head-in-the-box scene incorrectly. According to Mental Floss, quote, Viewers came out of the film believing the severed head of actress Gwyneth Paltrow, who played Pitt's wife, appeared on screen. 
It did not. Whoa. The thing I appreciated about it and what I thought Andrew Kevin Walker's script did so well was that it got your mind in overdrive. And this is what Fincher told Playboy in 2014. He also said, quote, it worked on your imagination. We were in great shape and didn't have to show the head in the box, unquote. According to Mental Floss, quote, during a scene in which Pitt's character, Detective David Mills, is chasing the killer through a perpetually rainy backdrop, Pitt slipped and drove his arm through a windshield. Mm. The resulting injury was so deep it went down to the bone. Pitt had to wear a cast for the rest of filming, which was written into the script. For scenes that had to be shot that took place earlier than the chase, the actor had to conceal his arm as best as he could. Here's another interesting tidbit. The majority of the violence in this film happens off screen. There's only one major scene that includes violence, and that's when Brad Pitt's character kills Spacey's character towards the end of the movie. The film was shot over a period of 55 days and was released on September 22, 1995 in, 2000, in over 2,000 theaters, where it grossed $13.9 million on its opening weekend, and it went on to gross a little over $100 million in North America, and 227 million the rest of the world for a total of 327.3 million dollars. Oh my god. Yes, and this is kind of funny. It made 7 the 7th highest grossing film in 1995. What? That's insane. The film also spent four consecutive weeks at the top spot at the US box office in 1995. The film was well received by critics at the time of its release. Sheila Johnston, in her review for The Independent, praised Freeman's performance and said, quote, The film belongs to Freeman and his quiet, carefully detailed portrayal of the jaded older man who learns not to give up the fight, unquote. So with that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Detective William Somerset is set to retire from the force in seven days, so in the meantime, he is paired with his hot-headed replacement, Detective David Mills. The two are set to investigate a series of murders inspired by the seven deadly sins mentioned in literature. The first three crimes are inspired by gluttony, a man who died from eating too much, greed, an attorney forced to cut a pound of flesh off of himself, and sloth, a child molester and drug dealer left strapped to a bed. With the use of photographs found by the police, it is determined that these crimes were planned years in advance. Mills starts out innocent and idealistic because he and his newly pregnant wife, Tracy, are new to city life. But as the film goes on, Mills and Tracy begin to deteriorate emotionally, and Tracy questions whether or not she wants to have the baby in such a cruel world. Eventually, with the use of library records, Somerset and Mills discover where the killer, John Doe, lives. When they reach his apartment, they knock, but there is no answer. John Doe soon turns up with groceries and shoots at Somerset and Mills, and then runs away. The two detectives give chase, and Mills breaks his arm in the process. John Doe points his gun at Mills' head but decides not to kill him and runs off again. When the rest of the police force help go through John Doe's apartment, they discover that there is not a single fingerprint to be found. They also discover a series of journals and clues that another murder has taken place, this time inspired by lust, where a sex worker is killed from being penetrated by a knife strap-on. The next day, the fifth victim is found, and their death is inspired by pride. The victim is disfigured by Doe, and when given the choice to either save herself and live life disfigured or commit suicide, she commits suicide. 
That same day, John Doe, covered in blood from the fifth victim, as well as another unknown victim, turns himself in. Apparently, the reason he didn't have fingerprints was because he occasionally shaves his finger skin off. Doe says that he wants to bring Somerset and Mills to the last two victims. If they agree, he will confess to all of the murders and not plead insanity. Doe guides Somerset and Mills to a remote location where they wait. Eventually, a delivery truck arrives with a box addressed to Mills. Doe begins to taunt Mills, explaining how envious he was of Mills' life and his relationship with his wife, Tracy. Somerset opens the box and is shocked at what he sees. He instructs Mills to stay back and not look at what's in the box. John Doe explains that his sin was envy and that he killed Tracy and put her head in the box. Mills, angry and devastated, shoots Doe multiple times, making his sin wrath. With the seven deadly sins achieved, Somerset decides not to retire and to stay a homicide detective. Thank you so much, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. Oh, you are welcome. So, the Bechdel test. Oof. <laughs> this film fails the Bechdel test so dang hard. Yeah. There is only one woman in the film with a first and last name, and that's Gwyneth Paltrow's character, Tracy Mills. Also, she dies, so that really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> the other female character with a name is Mrs. Gould, but she doesn't have a first name, and then she also just doesn't talk to Tracy, so it doesn't count. Ugh. Uh, so let's look at Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? <laughs> I just want to laugh because it's no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> Was the film written, directed, edited, or produced by a woman? Yes. One of the producers was Phyllis Carlisle. Oh, there you go. Uh, was the final girl or main character a person of color? Yes. Morgan Freeman is in the film. He, I consider him the main character. Well, yeah. He's seen in the very beginning and he lasts all the way until the end. So, Absolutely. Yes. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. Okay, so let's have a brief conversation on Dante's The Divine Comedy. Yeah, so this film is obviously heavily influenced by Dante's The Divine Comedy and biblical depictions of hell and the seven deadly, very punishable sins. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Right. And this is what's really interesting. Dante himself didn't actually invent the sins initially. And no, dear listener, they are not mentioned in the Bible. According to Chloe Langer, quote, while the original list of deadly sins originated from Christian tradition, conversation about the subject started with the Greeks and Romans. Aristotle wrote lists of human excellence and virtue. He argued that at the end of each extreme of the virtue, two vices could be found. Virtue, he insisted, was found in the middle. He called this concept the golden mean, quote unquote. Langer goes on to say, quote, I think you pronounce it Evagrius Ponticus. And he was a monk who lived in the fourth century. And in his writings, Evagrius lists eight evil thoughts in Greek. And they are as follows. Uh, gluttony, prostitution, avarice, pride, sadness, uh, sadness at someone's good fortune, mind you, wrath, boasting, and acidia, I think is how you pronounce it. Wow. And finally, quote, St. John Cassian later went to translate Evagrius's thoughts into Latin. 
So, John's translation became the Western understanding of the deadly sins. And his list reads, gluttony, lust, greed, pride, sorrow, wrath, vainglory, and sloth, unquote. And it actually, it wasn't until 590 AD that Pope Gregory I adjusted John Cassian's list to look more like the list that we use today. And this is most likely where Dante got the idea to add the seven deadly sins in his epic poem, which was finished in 1320, just a year before his death. Yes, and according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the seven deadly sins, quote, the second book of Dante's epic poem, The Divine Comedy, is structured around the seven deadly sins. The most serious sins found at the lowest level are the abuses of the most divine faculty. For Dante and other thinkers, a human's rational faculty makes humans more like God. Abusing that faculty with pride or envy weighs down the soul, weighs down the soul the most, though abuse is gluttonous. Abusing one's passions with wrath or a lack of passion, as with sloth, also weighs down the soul, but not as much as the abuse of one's rational faculty. Finally, abusing one's desires to have one's physical wants met via greed, gluttony, or lust abuses a faculty that humans share with animals. This is still an abuse that weighs down the soul, but it does not weigh it down like other abuses. Thus, the top levels of the mountain of purgatory have the top-listed sins, while the lowest levels have the more serious sins of wrath, envy, and pride. So Geoffrey Chaucer also mentions the seven deadly sins in his book, The Canterbury Tales, and particularly in the short story, The Parson's Tale, which is actually not really a tale, but more like a sermon. And this sermon, plus Dante's work, both show how the seven deadly sins were used for confessional purposes or as a way to identify, repent, and then find forgiveness for one's sins. So yeah, there's a little brief explanation of the seven deadly sins. Boom. Excellent. Thanks, Gracie. So um, let's talk about horror and true crime, because I think yes. a lot of people um, have trouble distinguishing whether this is like a crime movie or a horror movie. But obviously, I think that it's both. Of course. Yes. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So I think it goes without saying that horror and true crime are like the perfect combo, like cookies and milk. You pretty much can't have one without the other, right? Oh, my God. Yum. So, <laughs> yes, very tasty. <laughs> so Dave Richards says in an article for Criminal Element, quote, when a crime is committed, a balance is upset. And with that comes a sense of unease and perhaps even dread, especially if the perpetrator of the crime remains at large. It's like a monster has been set loose into society. And sometimes that's exactly what's happened. Because the crime and horror genres go together like chocolate and peanut butter. Writers have been combining these elements of these genres for years to create stories that maximize the strength of both genres. These crime-horror hybrids all take a detail-oriented and often gritty approach to the actions of the criminals and the people trying to stop them, but where they usually differ from traditional procedurals is in the role otherworldly elements play in the narrative." Unquote. So while John Doe isn't what you'd exactly call otherworldly, his character type is seen commonly in horror from Norman, oh, yeah, yeah, like Norman Bates or Jigsaw, and it's frightening because his crimes aren't really that unbelievable. 
they're dramatized a little bit, yes, but I think anyone who knows even a little bit about both genres can list off at least five other calculated and grotesque crimes similar to the ones depicted in the film. Insane, yes, but it taps into the root of our greatest fears in a way that fictional monsters or the supernatural cannot. The beauty of films like Seven is that we get the perfect blend of being horrified and frightened while being fascinated. In an article for Control Forever, author Jacob Klein writes, quote, Today we have seen a spike in realistic depictions of the world of crime. Shows like True Detective and Mindhunter are examples of Seven's impact on the genre, featuring realistic violence that is constructed in a dark, dreary package. David Fincher has been brought on as a director for a few episodes of Mindhunter, bringing the inspiration full circle. This pessimistic portrayal of the world is one that stuck, which is odd considering how the negativity was deemed as evil upon the film's release. The reason the desire to see evil in its true form stuck is the same reason that horror is successful in the first place, because the real world is so shocking at times that you have to see violence normalized in order to cope. As media becomes more advanced, people are exposed to more events and become desensitized to violence. This bleeds into our films and art as well, specifically horror, as the violence has become more grounded and less of a spectacle. The inspiration for this comes from films like Seven that treat violence as a reality rather than something that is disconnected from one's own beliefs. The film helped to spawn the gore age of the early 2000s with films like Saw and Hostel that took the gritty, crime-style violence to the next level. This era also utilized the concept of the noir-like tone with a dark, dirty depiction with a heavy focus on lighting. While they tended to focus more on the horror side, the inspiration is very clear, unquote. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a really good segue into our next topic, which is the year 1995, the new millennia, and Seven, and how that all kind of plays into each other. The film was released in 1995, as we mentioned earlier, and that's the same year that the DVD format was announced, eBay launched, a new version of Microsoft was released, O.J. Simpson was found not guilty, Major League Baseball players finally ended a 232-day strike, and the, Unabomber, the Unabomber's manifesto was published. There was a lot going on when Seven made its debut, and we were getting ready for the new millennia and all this rapidly advancing technology, and it's safe to say that while we were moving at a lightning pace when it came to technological development, the outlook on life in general was pretty bleak. Mostly everyone in this film looked at the world, not just their city, as a generally dark, criminally driven place. And it's what gets the two lead characters out of bed in the morning and moves the plot along all the way until the end. Right, and even past the end, because Somerset decides not to retire, he realizes that the fight isn't over and that it will never be over. And I love that last line by Somerset uh, when he says, quote, Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. 
it is so sad. It is sad. But I love it. Like, we talked about this a bit in our episode about the town that dreaded sundown, but true crime has always been a thing. Like, we as a society have always been obsessed with it, but it's, like, just more recently that we have become more open about our obsession Mm -hmm. after we, like, got through the very conservative 30s, 40s, and 50s. And the 90s was also the time of the 24-hour news cycle, Again, like we talked about this in our Hellraiser episode, but the satanic panic and the 24-hour news cycle like went hand in hand and they scared the shit out of the American public. Yeah. And like news for the most part used to be good stuff, but now the news is on all the time. So there's like more options to have like terrible incidents covered uh, because of it. And like, the world has always been bleak, but I think starting in the 90s when this movie came out, we finally realized as a society how terrible and bleak it was. Oh my god, that's so true. That's so sad. What a time to be alive. <laughs> what a time to be alive. I actually was, I I didn't realize this came out right in the middle of the 90s. I was for sure this came out towards the 2000s, but... When I started watching it, I was like, yeah, I guess this was a 90s film. Like, I was su- I was surprised by that. Yeah, no. But it makes sense. It's, oh my God, it's so true. And it's like, this was, me. I think a little bit more so for me, because I was born in 1993, but like, this was our introduction to the world. Like, these films were coming out, and like, I was very young, but like grew up watching true crime and stuff like that with my parents and it's like films like this were my introduction to true crime so it's like well like it can only uh it's only downhill from here i guess (laughs) yes i think this movie and copycat which is a um uh sigourney weaver movie oh yeah these two movies were huge, I think, for people in the 90s and especially like moms, like moms were into true crime. Right. And that was I, most of the time it's like your mom probably got you into that. And I think like these were like very much like crime mom movies that like they would watch. And then so their children would, too. And yeah, it just created this. Like I said, like this cycle of like, we're just terrified all the time. But, you know, SSDGM, we're all staying sexy and not getting murdered. Yes, yes. And uh, I think that's why this film is so important, because it dramatizes the horror of true crime. You know, that's so funny. I never really thought about it in that way that like, our moms were the ones who got us into true crime. Like, it's very female driven. And like, everybody always makes jokes about like... Lifetime movies being about like women getting kidnapped and like all these murder mysteries, but it's like it's so female centric, probably because of all the violence that's perpetrated against women, which we'll get into later on in the episode. But like it's so wild that that became a part of like the repertoire of stuff that like my mom would teach my sisters and I about like be careful of a b and c because you know I've heard these stories or like all of our moms became aware of this kind of stuff that was going on so it's very interesting when you look at it that way you know and I and some people their dads were big into especially if their dads were 
like in positions of um, like being police officers or detectives, like usually their dads would be the ones to teach them stuff. But I think the majority of women who are into true crime got into true crime because of their mothers telling them how to be safe. I'll never forget, Abby. My mother told me once, she said, if somebody tries to grab you, she goes, get on the ground and start eating grass and moo like a cow. Oh my God. I remember her saying that when we were little. <laughs> yes. I will never forget that because that, I think, was like the first time I think it hit me as a kid that I could be in danger to the point where I have to start acting like a, a weirdo. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, and I think that really stuck with me. And I, you know, I love my father, but it's so funny. Like, my father never taught me these things, but he never had to really understand what it was like. Yes. To do that. Like, but my mother did. It's so funny. It's so weird. Guys, let us know what your mother's told you to do. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. I want to know. I want to know. I want to know, too. Did your mom <laughs> tell you to get on the ground and start eating grass and moo like a cow? Because that's what my <laughs> mom told me to do. <laughs> okay, let's continue this conversation. Yeah. So let's talk about Mills and Somerset. Equal but opposite parallels. So Somerset and Mills serve as both ends of the spectrum. Somerset is the older, wiser, more experienced of the two, having spent so much time as a homicide detective on the force and seeing anything and everything that you could while fighting crime in the city. His disdain for the city is so strong that he wants to spend the rest of his days far from its borders, enjoying his retirement in seclusion. On the other hand is Mills, a young detective who loves his wife and his job, and he's hungry for anything that the streets can throw his way. He's ready to take on the case after Somerset tells his boss that he doesn't want this to be his last case, and Mills sees this as a golden opportunity to do good police work. The interesting thing about both of these men is that they have this kind of fleeting relationship that meets in the middle when it comes to catching John Doe. And by the end of the movie, their morals have completely switched. Mills lets go of this idea that there is good in the world because John Doe has taken his entire world from him. Right. And Somerset, whose whole life has already been taken from him, like his girlfriend broke up with him and they lost a child, like he decides to find new meaning. He decides not to let the evil in the world break him and to stay in the force and fight it. And this is where I think the producers would have had a, made a huge mistake by making Somerset the one who kills John Doe, because thematically it would not have made any sense at all. Like you said, Abby, Mills and Somerset are two sides of the same coin, and at the end, they completely flip. Yeah, and I actually want to go back to, like, Somerset as a as a, an officer for just a moment. Like, there are some similarities between him and John Doe, but Mills and John Doe are also kind of similar. And in an article from Philosophy Now, Authors Terry Murray and Lewis Rose elaborate on the characteristics between the two that cross paths throughout the film. And they say, quote, Detective Somerset also has much in common with killer John Doe, but differs from him in his ability to control his urges. What in common? For one, a cop and a religious fanatic like Doe share similar motives. As Rose writes, he is not the conventional serial killer in that his motive is to eradicate sinners. He feels he is killing in order to better mankind. 
And the parallel here with overzealous cops is only too evident. Not content to deal with the monster in the legal and proper manner, Detective Mills is drawn into utter sympathy with a statement that Doe himself makes in defense of his meticulously orchestrated murders. After his arrest, Doe tells the two officers that, quote, wanting people to listen, you can just tap, you can't just tap them on the shoulder anymore. You have to hit them with a sledgehammer, unquote. Mm. The most striking thing is how both Doe and Mills are motivated by the same kind of puritanical lust for perfection, and how, in both cases, this perfection is sought hypocritically by eradicating the external source of evil, the other, while failing to turn the puritanical gaze inwards. In wanting to be responsible for other people's behavior, both Doe and Mills perpetuate the wrongs they aspire to wipe clean, unquote. Which leads us to our final topic and our final thought, expendable women in the film. In a way, Seven serves as kind of a time capsule because of the way women are treated in the film. I absolutely agree. There are definitely good and bad sides to this, like using it as a way to measure how far we've come while simultaneously raising the awareness that maybe things are not so different than they were back in 1995. And even the scene where Somerset explains that, he says something like, in rape prevention classes, they teach women to yell fire instead of help. And it made me cringe pretty hard. And I want to talk about a few other things that caught my attention the last time when I watched this film. And I want to start with the unnamed sex worker. And John Doe uses her in order to teach an unfaithful man a lesson. And at first, I was angered by the fact that Fincher and Walker used her as a means to an end. But that isn't really the point they're trying to make here, at least in my opinion. And we can all agree that she didn't deserve her fate. But upon closer inspection, this says a lot about how we view women in popular you know, horror and crime films, but also in life in general. She's nameless and only known as the prostitute, which is alarming in itself. I was actually kind of shocked that they didn't talk about her. They didn't say her name. Yeah, like who I she know. Was. So it's hmm. so wild. But like the act of rape is not enough for John Doe. He has to use an instrument of his own construction in order to not only punish the man soliciting her, but kill her because in the movie he says she is a disease-spreading whore. Like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> gross. And obviously this is infuriating for the audience, but like, what message are we trying to get from this scene? Um, and in the same article I mentioned in our last topic from Philosophy Today, the authors bring up another really good point. And they say, quote, the violence in Seven is fetishistic precisely because Doe is trying to make a moral statement through art. The detail that has gone into his murders and the records of his crimes clearly displays a perverse form of art. And the film gets a reaction at the gut level and thus is arguably more effective than art, which does not shock or disturb. Yet, the power of a disturbing and even disgusting film such as Seven lies partly in our inability to put a comfortable distance between ourselves and the art. We respond as much to our own emotions and reactions as to the events on the screen, and in a discomforting way, we feel implicated in violence, which 
seems other and monstrous. One may see this as a reflexive commentary in which the Mills character represents our position via the horrors we see on screen. We may express disgust or, as in my case, irritation or moral outrage at violent acts pictured on the screen, but systematic studies of the horror genre have suggested that the opposite is the deeper truth, that the monster represents a projection of wish fulfillment and an escape from internal and external sensors which repress our subconscious desires. Yet, like Mills, we may be unaware how much the monsters we celebrate on screen year after year resemble our own inner psyches. One of the pleasures of the crime thriller genre is the moment of catharsis when we see the monster blown to smithereens by the sympathetic hero. Not only does this make us feel vicariously omnipotent, but it also allows our lust for violent revenge to be expressed relatively harmlessly. After all, like Mills, we're torn between a moral repulsion at barbaric acts and a subconscious desire to inflict equally repugnant punishments on their perpetrators, and so eradicate such crimes by equally forbidden and extreme means. This fantasy is part of what makes violent horror and crime movies so persistently popular. The genius of Seven is the way it exposes and reflects our hypocrisy about this." Unquote. So that was a really long quote, but it's really important because reading this quote made me realize what the filmmakers were trying to do with not only this character, but Tracy's character as well. Yes, absolutely. So Tracy is the only female character in the movie with a name and backstory. Like we mentioned earlier, she's a fifth grade teacher. She's terrified of this unplanned pregnancy, and she's so lonely that she has to turn to her husband's frickin' partner in order to get some kind of comfort or direction. And, like, the best Somerset can do is tell her that if she decides not to have the baby, to spare her husband the grief of losing out on their first child because the circumstances weren't right. Like, he tells her not to say anything to him about the pregnancy. Like, yeah. what is Tracy even supposed to do with that advice? I was like, oh, no, like, is this, uh, uh, yeah, I, you know what I thought? I thought, no, absolutely not. I wish I, like, if I was a patron at that diner, I would have, like, pulled her aside and said, you cannot keep secrets from your husband. No, I know. <laughs> He's your partner. You should tell him, like, <laughs> this is, like, yikes, which is, like, that's my thing. Like, every relationship is different, but, and maybe this is the relationship I have with my husband, that if I... Like, I would express, like, how I was feeling. But but this is the thing. Like, she can't do... She feels like she can't talk to her husband. Well, and that so. is so wild to me because, like, maybe it's... I don't know what it's like to be married to a police officer or a detective right. or anything like that. And I'm gonna... I think it's safe to assume that the dynamic is a little bit different than, like, a quote-unquote normal relationship would be like. But I feel like that communication should like be there it should be open because as somebody who constantly moves around because of their husband's job like you have to have that conversation otherwise your marriage isn't going to work well and it is frustrating because it's almost like david is married to two different people he's married to tracy and he's also married to his partner and his partner is like hey 
this is going to fuck up my relationship with David if you tell him about the pregnancy and decide to terminate it. So don't say anything to him for the sake of both our jobs, which is ridiculous because he's retiring. Well, and this is the thing, and this is my problem with her character as a as a whole, is that she, I don't feel like she's represented very well. Right. And it's, be- and it's because men are writing her character. And, you know, that's just how it is. It's kind of a trend. It's kind of a trend. I just mean, like, she's sort of like um, like a catalyst, you know? Like, she's this, like she's there to, to be there to damage the male characters in the film. Like, yes. her, her, her tragic end is there to damage the male characters, including Somerset, who gets to know her because of this whole diner talk that he has with her. So his... He him seeing her head in the box is also like oh, this big thing because he also knows her well, and um, she's her death is basically there to make the male characters have arcs, and it's frustrating because isn't that normally what women have to go through in film? They have to be they have to be the thing that is you know affects the male characters so that they can have an arc, and you know so and her arc is completely destroyed because she dies. Well. The other thing about that, though, and it's I know that we've talked about this on the podcast before, but she's reduced to motherhood like her. Her being a teacher is pretty much irrelevant and her having a career is irrelevant. And the reason why it gets such a an emotionally like gut wrenching reaction from the audience is because like we all know that she's pregnant. Yeah, it just like it adds to her death like just her dying is not enough she has to also be pregnant right or like i don't know in a way it feels like the audience uh, it's hard to explain because i don't want to sound like an asshole but the audience is like yes it's super sad that tracy died but the unborn baby it's like oh my god it's it's kind of a letdown honestly i feel like yes it was added to the story to make it more tragic but would it have been so sad for people that Tracy died if she wasn't pregnant? Like, what if she had talked to Somerset in the diner about how I'm just really having problems adjusting and I'm scared because I can't find a career here? Why add the baby in there? Right. And you know why the baby's in there? It's for the men. The baby is for the men. I think part of the shock, though, too, was that he didn't even know that she was pregnant anyway. Right. Right. So we it's know like, because Somerset knows, but yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. I guess ugh, it's just frustrating. And my my overall issue with Tracy's character <laughs> is that she serves as a sort of like side dish to Mills. Like she is incredible and kind and smart and motherly, but she is not realistic and incredibly tragic. Yeah, she's very Shakespearean yes, virgin kind yeah. of character. Of course, like she's used as a vehicle for the emotions of the audience and like as many girlfriend or wife characters are. While I don't think she is necessarily weak, she's an example of what happens to women who are overshadowed by a man's pride and ego. And she dies because of it. And if she wasn't the victim of John Doe, she would have had to live her life in her husband's shadow. I guess, like, the fact that they were high school sweethearts kind of adds to the sweetness of their relationship. 
Yes, I love that. I love that they added that in there because that is huge, I think. But it also feels like Tracy never really had a life outside of Mills. Exactly. Like that's exact like that's why I love that they mention that because it is so it's such a little tiny thing. But the fact that he's like, so you guys have known each other since high school? And she goes, yes, from the moment I met him, I knew I was going to marry him. And I was like, that is so, like, maybe like 20%, maybe less of the population has married their high school sweetheart. Yeah, I know. And it's so fairy tale like and unrealistic. And she's, Gwyneth Paltrow is this thin, like, ethereal looking woman who you know, is basically like she, I almost feel like Gwyneth Paltrow is herself in all of these roles that she takes. She's like otherworldly and elf-like and she feels like she doesn't fit into this world. And that is totally meant to be. She is like somebody who lives in a fantasy sort of. And the fantasy is literally killed when she dies. Yeah. Well, I mean, that ending scene itself has a lot to do with male ego as a driving force also. Apparently, a lot of people had a problem with it because it was so dark. And the fact that the scene was almost cut from the film, but ended up being like a make or break for Brad Pitt endorsing the film entirely says a lot. Like he basically said, I'm not going to do any promotions if you change the ending of this film. This film freaking slaps because it makes you incredibly heartbroken. But uh, like maybe because we're not used to seeing men in vulnerable vulnerable positions like women so often find themselves, maybe? This is a huge reason why I love the film, though, because it makes you question everything from morals to the way we view male and female emotion and passion. Like, it's just so intense and it makes you think for like days after you watch it. Absolutely. And you know, like, I think that we need to continue to have films like this, the ones that make you question, the ones that make you cringe, the ones that, you know, make you feel uncomfortable with how they are made. Because like, and I mean this in media, I don't mean this in like, you know, life, like we should all treat people with respect. But I mean, like, art, media, that should question everything that you believe. And um, this film does that. And it's made in the 90s. So it's, like you said, time capsule. I think time capsule films are so important because we can look back on them and see, has anything changed? Not really. So maybe we should kind of adjust ourselves a little. Yeah, we need to work on this. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and that will take you right to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We upload full-length episodes early, give away patron gifts, review horror trailers, TV shows, and new movies over there too sometimes. So become a patron, won't you? Yeah, you can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.